I have a feeling I know what you need this morning. I have a feeling I know what you want. And I think it's a vacation. I think that's what you really want. I don't know what a vacation looks like to you. I'll show you what a vacation looks like to me. Karen will put it up on the screen for us. That. That looks like a vacation to me. You know, somewhere in the Caribbean maybe. But maybe to you it's different. Maybe it's an Alaskan cruise. Maybe it's a a weekend at the cottage. Uh, Maybe it's camping. Whatever sounds like a vacation to you, I'm pretty confident that would be really good for you right now. Now, there's things limiting us and stopping us from taking those vacations. So I want to offer you an alternative. I want to offer you something that might not seem like the medicine you need right now, but it's still traveling in this sense. I've titled this sermon, On the Road Again. So this morning, let's go on a different kind of trip, a different kind of journey with Paul on his second missionary journey. I know what you're thinking right now. Ugh, really, Aaron? You teased us. You know, I I want rest. I want a holiday. Well, I'll say if you want rest, take a nap this afternoon and maybe go to bed early tonight. I know those with young kids. That might not be possible, but do your best. So this might not be rest in the one sense, but I promise you this trip will profit you. We're going to journey through God's word together. And so our itinerary over the next four weeks or so, Lord willing, is going to be what took Paul three years to do. Took Paul three years to do. All right. Our itinerary this morning, yeah, over the next four weeks as well, is what took Paul over three years. Now, on his little trip, when he was on the road again, he wasn't concerned with dodging Highway 400 traffic. He was uh, walking over 3,000 miles on this journey. He wasn't concerned about getting up early, uh, being friendly with the staff, and getting uh, the best chair by the pool. He was busy saying and doing things that got him put in prison, the best spot in prison. He wasn't considering uh, how he would manage his massage appointments on this trip. He was busy getting beaten with wooden rods. That was his massage. He wasn't concerned about a drafty room in his resort. He was busy getting locked up with no trial. Now, other than the absolute worst travel brochure you've ever heard, uh, these are really, in reality, some of the challenges that Paul faced uh, that we'll look at this morning on the first part of his trip. Now, before I lose you with this incredible sales pitch and uh, you imagining your toes uh, sinking into a sandy beach, I want to tell you this passage is for you. This passage covers a whole spectrum. Maybe you're listening in this morning, and you feel stuck. You're a Christian. You want to live on mission. You want to show and share Jesus' love. Well, let this morning be a motivation to you. Maybe you don't know where God wants you. Maybe you feel like you're spinning your tires. Well, watch what the believers do as we go through our passage this morning and following God's direction as he opens and closes doors. Maybe your life circumstances have you feeling chained down. Consider what Paul and Silas do, how they respond when they're chained down, quite literally. Maybe you feel, though, like you have it all together. You have a job, you're successful, but there's a void in your heart. 
And so this morning, I'd encourage you to consider Lydia and her story. But maybe you're listening in this morning and you're desperate. You feel like you're out of options. Let's say, look at the Philippian jailer that we'll look at. He was out of options. He was ready to take his own life. But he finds an unquenchable hope in Jesus Christ. And so, based on even that little uh, run-through, you can tell we have a lot to get through. And you'll see through this entire passage, uh, through our entire morning, we will be centered on the gospel throughout. We'll see God's glorious gospel strengthening the church. We'll see God's glorious gospel saving people. We'll see God's glorious gospel transforming. And so that's our big idea this morning. God's glorious gospel strengthens, saves, and transforms. And so keep an eye out. Watch for this big idea throughout the entire story, through every character, through every problem. And so we've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's dive in. We'll start with the strengthening power of the gospel. That's our first point, the strengthening power of the gospel. And we'll see right off the hop, the church is strengthened even through relational conflict. So we're going to be finishing up Acts chapter 15 and going through all of chapter 16. So start reading Acts 15, verses 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to do the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So Luke gives us the honest truth. I like this about Luke. He tells the story warts and all. He doesn't avoid the rough patches. We see that there's division. There's a sharp disagreement. We looked at a few weeks ago that John Mark bailed on Paul and Barnabas. Now, we don't know why he bailed. He could have had a lot of different motivations. But we can tell Paul was not too keen on the idea of bringing him back in onto the team. We also know that we looked at a few weeks ago that there was restoration to this relationship, that Paul eventually would write and ask for John Mark and say he was useful for the work. And so we can be thankful that there was restoration, but what we see here is legitimate division, a legitimate conflict. But as usual, God uses apparent setbacks to accomplish his purposes. Right? We see one outreach here becomes two. Barnabas and John Mark, they go to Cyprus. That's where uh, Paul and Barnabas started their missionary journey on the first missionary journey. And then Paul and Silas, they go to strengthen the planted churches. Silas is going to factor in. He was part of this letter-delivering team that we looked at last week. But Silas is, uh, Silas is Paul's buddy. You know, He's his right-hand man. They're a dynamic duo. And so they set off. So we can be encouraged by even this passage, like I said, warts and all, that God can work through conflict. The churches can still be strengthened. Now, we don't need to seek out conflict. 
But we can be encouraged that even through that conflict, the church is strengthened. And we see the church is also strengthened through demonstrated grace. Through demonstrated grace. Let's keep reading 16 verses 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So this is like part two of the sermon last week. They're delivering that letter that, was, uh, that they came to this conclusion, the Jerusalem Council, that justification is by faith alone. And so they were, they're on a mission. They're delivering this letter to the churches. Paul picks up this guy named Timothy, likely a convert from his first missionary journey. But I can see what a lot of you are thinking. Hold up. Wasn't the entire point of this letter that they wrote last time about justification by faith alone so that uh, they didn't have to be circumcised to have salvation? Yeah, that's totally right. We don't see a conflict here. It's not that Paul was adamantly arguing one thing and now he does the opposite. If there was any suggestion that this would be a situation of Timothy's salvation or receiving salvation through this act, Paul wouldn't have done it. We see in Galatians 2, he doesn't circumcise Titus for that exact reason. Galatians 5, he argues against this as well. Right? If this was the case, Paul wouldn't have done it. But this isn't a salvation issue. This is a demonstration of grace. And Luke lays it out. He says, Timothy has a Jewish mother. He has a Greek father. But he would have been recognized as Jewish. And so to all the Jews that they're delivering these letters to and sharing the good news with, this would be a barrier that he was Jewish but not circumcised. And so Paul and especially Timothy make the decision we shouldn't put up an unnecessary barrier. I'll tell you, this is not a prescription. This is not uh, what we see prescribed. But what we can learn out of this is that there's things in our lives that we need to sacrifice for the sake of others. Unless God forbids it, we should be willing to consider letting things go or doing certain things so that we can break down barriers. Think about even particular cultural divisions we could have now. If we need to wear a particular head covering or clothing, if we need to sit on the floor or abstain from a certain type of food, we should do that for the sake of others. Let's not put a stumbling block in front of the gospel. And so we see from this demonstrated grace another report in verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. It's a good news report. So we see the church strengthened through relational conflict. We see the church strengthened through demonstrated grace. And now we see the church is strengthened by God's divine orchestration. Continue in verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. 
And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go back into Macedonia, sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. There's a few interesting, well, there's a number of interesting observations even in these couple verses here. The first, you may have noticed, we switch from they to we. Right? We've been reading through, Luke wrote the book of Acts, we've been reading that everything happens from a distance. Luke talks about in the beginning of his gospel that he took a careful account, wants to give a good report. Now, all of a sudden, it's we. And so scholars agree that this is where Luke likely jumped on board to the trip. This is where he joined in on the mission. And so kind of mid-paragraph, we switch from they to we. And so sometime in here, Luke shows up. We also get a bit of a confusing geography trip here. Uh, We don't know exactly how God was preventing them from going certain places, but we see uh, that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, that Uh, The Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go into Bithynia. Again, we don't know exactly. We know uh, for sure at some point, Paul gets this vision to go to Macedonia. And so that's what they do. If you want to trek with us, if you flip to the back of your Bible, there's likely maps in the back. And if uh, if you, as when I was a kid sitting in church, I would just look at the maps, but I didn't really know what they meant. If you flip back there, there's probably one that says Paul's missionary journey or missionary journeys. If you look, this is our second missionary journey. And you'll kind of see some of these landmarks along the way and how God directed their path. But we see through this paragraph that God is closing doors and opening others. We can be encouraged that this is the way God works. We consider some of uh, the great missionaries that have gone before us in the 18th and 19th centuries. David Livingston, Uh, William Carey, and Adoniram Judson. You can see David Livingston paid the most for his portrait. It's the nicest. But these three guys, they all had one plan and all ended up somewhere different. David Livingston wanted to go to China, but he ended up in Africa. William Carey planned to go to Polynesia, but was sent to India. And Adoniram Judson went to India originally, but he ended up in Burma. And so like these great missionaries 200 years ago and like these great missionaries 2,000 years ago, let's trust God wherever he sends us, allowing doors to close, allowing others to open, and share the gospel with whoever God has placed before us. So again, share the gospel with whoever God has placed before us. So if you're part of a community group and you're thinking, okay, who are these people? When we're thinking missionally, who am I supposed to share the good news with? Look where you are. Look where God has placed you. Share the gospel with whoever God has placed before you. And so we see the church strengthened by the gospel. We see them strengthened through relational conflict, demonstrated grace, and God's divine orchestration. And now Luke zooms in on a few people's lives, and we see the saving power of the gospel in a few particular people. And so we're going to just power through here and read the rest of the verses. So it's going to be a bit of a haul, but it's too good of a story to not read through. So stay with me and just soak it all in. If you have your Bible, pull it out. Have it in front of you. It's helpful. Uh, It'll be on the screen. And uh, if you want to just close your eyes and listen to the story, that works too, as long as you don't fall asleep from the Caribbean vacation fantasy. So let's read 
verse 11 all the way to 40. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading silly, silly, a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. Now on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned to her and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke, he saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. 
let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So we see through that whole passage the saving power of the gospel. First of all, God saves through the gospel proclaimed. To believe the gospel, we must hear the gospel. Romans 10, 13 and 14 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? It seems too obvious, but an important ingredient here is that somebody shares the gospel. In order to believe the gospel, we must hear the gospel. Paul wasn't talking about the weather to Lydia or to the jailer. He was sharing the good news with them. Now, I imagine the tone of these two conversations were very different. One was this peaceful prayer meeting by the river. doesn't sound more tranquil than that. The other was a man literally about to kill himself. So the tone of these conversations would have been very different, but the, the message would be the same. And that's a message of hope. That's the message of the gospel. Because you may think, Lydia here, she seems like she has it all together. This jailer, his life's falling apart. He's got some big problems, but I'll tell you, they had the same problem. The world's biggest problem. The same problem that you have, the same problem that I have. That's a problem called sin. God created humanity as part of his creation to, to rule and have dominion over the earth created us in his image. But we've rebelled from the very first man and woman all the way up to us. We have sinned. We have rebelled against God. We have chosen our own ways. We said, I want to run the show. I want to take care of things here. We've chosen our own way to live. The Bible says all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And the penalty for that sin, the penalty for that rebellion against God is death. The wages of sin, the cost, the price is death. But there's good news. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God in his mercy sent his son to come and die. Live a perfect life. The only human to ever do so. To come live a perfect life. Die the death that we deserve in exchange his righteousness, his perfection for all of our sin, wearing that on his shoulders. It's a beautiful exchange. And all we need to do is believe in him, trust him, accept this lavish love, accept this grace. We know Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, showing God's wrath had been satisfied. And that's what we need to do. We need to believe in the risen Lord Jesus. There are two ways to live. Will you trust in Christ as our only hope, as we sang about right before, or will you reject God and attempt to run your own life, facing all that comes with that? 
This isn't a rhetorical question. This is a question we all must face. There are two ways to live. This is not a spectrum. What will you choose? And so I say to you, along with Paul, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You can be forgiven by God. You can have eternal life. I'll tell you, I'm right there with you. It almost sounds too good to be true. I'll tell you, it is too good for what we deserve, but it's definitely true. And so Lydia and the jailer are faced with this burden of sin. They're faced with their complete depravity. We see that God opens up their hearts. So another part of the saving power of the gospel is God saves through the opening of hearts. Look at the contrast to these people. We see Lydia, she's got it all together. Uh, People, scholars seem to agree she was wealthy. She sold purple goods. The process of making purple dye was expensive and laborious, and she sold these purple goods, purple goods associated with royalty. She also had a home, a large enough home, it seems, to house this fledgling church. And so people seem to agree she was a successful businesswoman. She was a fashion mogul. But Lydia, she had it all together. Another character we see is this slave girl. She is oppressed on multiple fronts. She's oppressed by horrible owners. And she's oppressed by this spirit, this evil spirit. And it doesn't get much lower than that in those days to be a female slave. We see that her owners don't really care about her. They just care about the money she can get them. So we have Lydia, we have the slave girl, and then we have this jailer. He's kind of somewhere in the middle. He's a Roman citizen, would have had some rights because of that, but not significant power. Think blue collar. So we see this wide range of people, but we see God's grace doesn't only extend to the righteous, the powerful, or the influential. God is in the business of saving people. God is in the business of saving souls. And so if you're hearing this today and you feel unreachable, you feel too far, or you feel like you've got it all together, I'll tell you the message is the same to you as it is to me, as it was to Lydia, as it would be to the slave girl and the jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. And what we can be grateful of here is God does the saving work. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, not a persuasive argument that provokes a response. We see Paul write in 1 Corinthians, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So pray that God would open the hearts of the people in your life that need to hear the good news. And we need to share the good news and pray for God to open hearts. Write that down. We need to share the good news and pray for God to open hearts. And so we see the saving power of the gospel through the gospel proclaimed. We see the saving power of the gospel through God opening hearts. And now we see God's saving work demonstrated in baptism. Following the trend, the pattern of the New Testament, what's next? Well, we see this this pattern of baptism. In their baptism, they publicly proclaim their allegiance to Christ and his people by immersing themselves in water, symbolizing dying to their old selves and being raised again in Christ. Baptism is going public with our faith. Becoming a Christian is a personal experience, certainly. It's a heart thing. 
But it's certainly not private. It's personal, but it's not private. It's an outward expression of an inward change. It's uniting ourselves with Jesus and his people. And we see in this early church in Philippi, this is their, the doorway in. This is what this, this baptism is symbolizing. It's the same thing we do today when we're baptized. This is why we have baptism as a requirement for membership. We are a membership, a, a covenanted community of believers who are baptized into this family. They're welcomed in with open arms. So this is what we see here. Now we see some sticky points too that people have disagreed with over time. We see these household baptisms. What's that all about? But we shouldn't just look at these passages in isolation. Even zooming out to the book of Acts, we see that the prerequisite for baptism is faith. Looking at even a couple weeks ago, Cornelius, we see with Lydia, the jailer, the implication is that the whole household would have heard the gospel and believed. A good example of this is Crispus, who is one of the best names, Crispus. It kind of sounds like Christmas and Crispers, but anyways. Crispus, in uh, chapter 18, we'll get there in a couple weeks. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So that's the implication there. And so we see the strengthening power of the gospel. We see the saving power of the gospel. And now we see the transforming power of the gospel. We've considered that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. We see that the gospel isn't just there for conversion. The gospel is there for transformation. And we can see that in the way that Paul and Silas respond. Look at the story of this slave girl. There's this slave girl following them around. And sure, she's saying some stuff that sounds pretty true. But sometimes there's bad publicity. right? They, they're concerned about the integrity of the message, likely. There's this possessed slave girl following them around, calling things out. They didn't want their message to be confused with the occult. Says Paul was annoyed. I don't know if he, if that's the the best word, but maybe he was annoyed. She followed them for days, yelling. But we see it's an act of mercy. He rescues her. The Lord rescues her from a double oppression: oppressive slave owners and an oppressive spirit. But we see as soon as she is released from these burdens, from this oppression, the owners realize, man, we just lost some money. Let's take these guys out. And so they bring them into the city center. And we see them persevere through humiliation. Their clothes are ripped off. They're beaten badly. But we see the transforming power of the gospel in their perseverance. They, they keep going. And so they're battered. They're sticky with blood. And they're put into prison. They're put in these torturous stocks. The way these stocks were designed is they would spread your legs out in an uncomfortable position and your legs would cramp up badly. You can think of that foot cramp you've had laying in bed. That's Imagine that all the time. And these ankle stocks could be paired with wrist stocks that they would use as a torture device to stretch you out. So this is not just like they're, they're holding you. Right? This is a battered, beaten person locked up in these stocks. But they persevere. Now, do we see them just grit and bear it? No, we also see them respond in worship. They're singing. They're praying after they've been beaten and locked up. 
When we saw Peter in prison a few weeks back, he was sleeping. That's a peace beyond understanding. And Paul and Silas, they're singing. You see, I love this. The other prisoners are listening, likely the jailer too. And so Christian, I would encourage you, let your peace and joy through trial be a testimony to God's transformation in your life. You can't do that on your own power. Pray that God would sustain you in those seasons when you can only persevere by his peace in you. We see this transforming power of the gospel through perseverance, through worship, and also through courage. This earthquake happens. They could have bolted. I don't know. After being beaten and locked up, I think that would have been my first instinct. They could have taken off, but they courageously stayed. And we see that God's plan wasn't to free Paul and Silas. It was to free this jailer from a lifetime of slavery to sin. This jailer likely would have been punished severely, likely killed for having all of these prisoners escape. And so he decides that he's going to kill himself in his desperation. But Paul and Silas courageously stay and they courageously call out to him. And so we see courage in their staying. We see courage also in these last few verses. Right? The magistrates say, okay, they've, we've flogged them good, kept them for a night in prison, we can let them go. But Paul knows they've been mistreated. They live in this honor-shame culture. And he knows as a Roman citizen, he's entitled to rights. And so he calls the magistrates out on it. He says, hey, come and get me. If, you're, if you want to tell me this, tell it to my face. And so the magistrates were justifiably concerned. They had mistreated a Roman citizen. No trial, no nothing. And so for Paul, this wasn't arrogance. This was an important piece of public vindication. This mattered for the integrity of Paul and Silas. This mattered for the integrity of the gospel. This mattered for the integrity of this brand new church in Philippi. And so he was protecting that integrity by being courageous and standing up to them in this moment. And so as you can see, we've covered a lot of ground. We've looked at a number of different people. It may not have been the relaxing trip you were thinking. It might not have been as relaxing as that uh, Caribbean villa. But this was the beginning of a God-glorifying, true story, a trip, a journey that demonstrated the strengthening, saving, and transforming power of the gospel. So it is our joy to be continuing that legacy, to be part of this 2,000-year-old heritage. You know, maybe it's not relaxing. But in it, we see a rest that you will not find on TripAdvisor. This is a rest that can only be found in the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit's work in your life. And so I'd encourage you, go into your weeks resting in the fact that God will strengthen his church even through conflict. You can rest in the confidence of a God who opens and closes doors. You can rest in the fact that the grave and death are conquered. You can rest in the fact that God does the saving work. Pray that he would open hearts. So HGC, go. Proclaim the strengthening and saving gospel and let it transform 
your hearts so that you can respond with perseverance, courage, and worship. Let's pray. Lord, we need you to sustain us, to transform us through the gospel. But thank you for the promises we read about in your word that you do strengthen, save, and transform by the power of this good news. So Lord, we, we do need you. Enable us by your spirit to be bold in our proclamation, to persevere through conflict. Pray that you would open up hearts and transform us that we can respond by persevering uh, through courage and by responding in worship. And so let's do that now, Lord, as we respond to your word to us. God, open up our own hearts to, to praise you. We do praise you. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.